Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews. And what an interview we have for you today to help take you from good to great. I hope you were having a great day. I hope you had a great week. I know I did. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Michael McDonald in times of the Melvins. We were listening to some 80s yacht rock in the OR the other day, and it was amazing how many songs Michael McDonald was on back in that era. I can only imagine that at some point he turned on the radio and it's like, oh my gosh, it's me again. He was sick of himself. I doubt our guest today suffered from that same issue, looking at a published work in JBJS and going, oh my gosh, it's you again. But his body of work is voluminous. His CV ran my printer out of paper, no lie. And of course, I'm talking about a conclusion to our interview with Dr. Bernie Morey from the Mayo Clinic. So without further ado, let's just jump right back in where we left off last week. Dr. Moore, you delivered a keynote lecture entitled Impediments in the Successful Implementation of Medical Technology. We've got quite a few entrepreneurs in the audience. Uh, tell me about the lecture. Well, uh, the AOS has been really very good at trying to understand issues that uh, are, relate to our profession. And theres I don't know if it's a growing number, but there's certainly an awful lot of interest among active orthopedic surgeons. Uh, to uh, have uh, innovative ideas that are explored and possibly commercialized. Um, and it's no less true with biologics and, um, and other expressions of, of intellectual property. Um, and so uh, there was a group of individuals that uh, got together and said, you know, maybe the academy ought to have a meeting on this where we explore all the aspects of it for uh, the um, – that we can share with the orthopedic surgeon. Well, at the time, I was an interim CEO of a uh, device company, and um, that company was having issues. And I, I knew what the issues were, of course, and I knew why the issues were there. And a lot of it went to the the, the nature of this meeting. You know, what are the impediments? And and one way to look at it is what are the pitfalls? And so uh, I uh, researched that uh, topic with the uh, lens of being somebody who was responsible for a company who was actually struggling with some of the some of the problems it was struggling with was because we had not taken into account or founding fathers of the company. Uh, we're not aware of some of these possible pitfalls and fell into them. You've got nine patents out there. Congratulations. That's no small feat. Any one particular stand out to you as the one you were the most proud of? Well, I think the male conservative hip was uh, probably the best because it was innovative and uh, it was the first of its kind. It was not a me too. Patents aren't supposed to be me too, but in fact, they are or they're very close to it, a lot of them. So I guess I feel most comfortable with um, with the um, male conservative hip. There, the other way, there was an external fixator, an articulated external fixator that we had a fairly unique design for how it was to go on and all um, and how it would be distracted and still articulate. And I think that was of interest that I take some pride in that and also the uh, – the male elbow brace because it, it does three functions with one brace and it's 
modifiable but not custom so it's not as expensive maybe as it might be so those are the ones that i guess come to mind uh most immediately speaking of external fixators you published an article back in 1995 detailing the use of distraction arthroplasty in unstable elbows not something that we hear about every day could you detail me and my audience on just exactly uh, what this procedure is all about it's a term that rolls off your tongue, and I used it in a paper, of course. But um, it always bothered me a little bit that it, it, it doesn't tell you exactly what's going on because arthroplasty means that you know you alter the joint trying to correct a deformity or so. And distraction, of course, means you separate it. So distraction arthroplasty is a, a means of um, altering a joint with an essential component of separating the two bones, but it doesn't necessarily mean it. Do, it does. It does mean that the that the elbow is separated. In this, uh, in the way I used it, is with an external fixator, and the elbow moves while it's separated. So it's stabilized, but it can still move, and the two bones are separated. And in what the uh, procedure that I really use this on is an interposition arthroplasty where we put a membrane uh, over the humerus or a tendon, as it turns out, and then separate the ulna from the humerus, allow the ulna to move on the humerus while the soft tissue envelope heals with the protection of an external fixator. And um, I think that's a very good concept. I still use it. I've got a case uh, when I go back to Texas, my first surgical case is a interposition arthroplasty where I'll be putting these pins in. So that's, that's the next surgery I'm going to be doing. Um, it's not done everywhere. Uh, in fact, it's got a limited number of places, it seems, that uses it. There's other ways to treat a similar problem, like if, it's, if the joint's good, all you got to do is uh, get rid of the scar tissue, and a lot of times that's done with the scope. But if you've got a bad joint, the joint has been fractured, you've lost the cartilage, maybe a little bit of a deformity, not too much, um, you can refashion that joint and then cover it. And then to do that, once you've done that, you want the soft tissues to heal. So when you get all that done, you don't want to be rubbing that membrane off, so you want to separate the bones. So all of those features of that interposition arthroplasty call for protecting it and allowing it to move, and that's done with this uh, external fixer. Dr. Mori, I was the poster boy for tennis elbow for far too long. I had way too many shots, tried too many things, bought too many braces. And finally, a surgeon said, enough's enough. We're going to try something different here. We're going to try what he called a hot poker technique. We're going to numb your elbow up, and we're just going to jab it to kingdom come and get it bleeding and hopefully inspire your body to heal it. And that's exactly what happened. I have not had any trouble with it since. So tell me, where are we on treating this malady called tennis elbow? I think you may not know it, but you just kind of walked right into it in the sense that um, the company that I was the interim CEO for um, product line started with a treatment for tennis elbow. Um, it's called Tenex, and uh, you may or may not have heard of it, but it uses ultrasound energy to remove the disease tendon. And then there's evidence that the, um, the ultrasound energy also stimulates some healing. And uh, we tap the bone while we were removing it, uh, the disease tendon. And that causes bleeding, which is what you had. You had a dry needling, which which has been reported to be effective maybe up to 80% of the time. 
Um, but this is an elegant uh, t- technique because it removes the disease tendon. And we think, therefore, it allows it to heal faster and more reliably because you got a clean, fresh blood clot uh, in uh, normal tissue because the abnormal tissue has been removed. And um, the success rate of this has been at least 90%. Uh, for tennis elbow, and then it's got other applications also. So uh, I've done over 400 of the 10X procedures and since uh, over uh, an eight-year period. And since uh, doing these, I would say that I, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I have not opened a tendinopathy case since I started using 10X. So that's that would be my go-to. You can do it under local anesthesia. You can do it in the office, but there's it gets a little complex. There's a facility fee that needs to be paid to buy the probe because it's disposable. And um, therefore, most people don't do it in an office setting. They do it in an laboratory surgical center. But uh, that that is that to me is the treatment of the future. And uh, we've had very good results with it. And it's becoming very popular. What an awesome idea. I will absolutely put uh, a link to this company and the technology in the show notes. People have no idea just how traumatic uh, this disorder is unless you've had to suffer through it. Just miserable. Good. Well, thank you. I think it is a, it's a technology I got involved with because I actually thought it could drive the cost of care down because it can return people to work. Like you said, you suffered with that thing and put up with it and did all kinds of uh, interventions and just couldn't get it there. And uh, you're right. You use the word traumatized. That's what dry needling does. And it does cause bleeding and the bleeding carries in the uh, proteins and healing factors. And uh, so does this, but it does it in a little bit more uh, exotic way, but it is still done under um, a local anesthesia. A particularly vexing issue is a patient in the waiting room with a stiff elbow. Now, you've written extensively about that. Do you have any advice to surgeons listening on how to manage just that? It, it depends really on the nature of the stiffness, um, the etiology. So if the stiffness is known to primary osteoarthritis, it almost always presents with a loss of extension, and the patient complains more of impingement pain in the back of the elbow rather than the uh, the loss of motion. If the condition continues and if it's more severe, then a greater loss of motion can occur. So in the primary osteoarthritis at the elbow, the pathology is that of osteophyte formation. The joint cartilage is often spared or pretty spared, not too badly involved. So the, the procedure of choice is an arthroscopic removal of the spurs. Uh, I'm simplifying things, but that's that's the treatment of choice for that uh, kind of um, presentation. If it's a post-trauma patient, um, there, there's so many variables that go into that. But we look at how a person is progressing after the treatment. Let's say that it's had a surgical procedure for, to fix a fracture. And if they're not making any progress, and it's three, two weeks out and there's no progress, four weeks out, no progress, I'll give them a six-week recheck and say, if you don't have any progress by six weeks, um, I'm going to put you to sleep for about three minutes, and I'm going to stretch this elbow out. And so you can do that uh, uh, readily at, at six weeks, and that's a very good way to, I think, improve the motion relatively inexpensively. And then I put them in a male elbow brace, and I have a regular protocol. Um now, if if they are further out than that, they've injured their elbow, 
They've had tons of therapy, which is usually the case. It's not getting any better. And they have a limited motion that is not consistent with the normal daily function. And then uh, that's a patient that I might be interested in putting an arthroscope in and removing the scar tissue. If it's only, if it's, if it's, if it's less than six months, I might still try to put the patient to sleep and stretch it out. And then if I can't improve it significantly, then I'd, they're asleep. Then I just proceed with the scope. So a lot of times I'll tell them I'm going to try to stretch it out, but if that won't do it, I'll have to put the scope in. So I use that a, a modest amount of time. Yeah, I can go either way. Um, if it's a well-established stiff elbow, then um, that requires, uh, uh, well, if it's well-established, you may have to do it, and it's high grade. It, it, it has very little motion. Let's say 30 degrees. That means a tight joint to get into. That may be difficult to do through a scope, in which case an open procedure called a column procedure might be used. If the joint surface is involved and is arthritic, that's when we revert to an interposition arthroplasty in a young person or a total joint in an older person. So I, I know I went kind of fast through that, but uh, it's a, it is a treatment algorithm that you test on age, arc of motion, time from onset, and then your options are arthroscopy, um, open column procedures called open bereavement, um, interposition arthroplasty. And if the person is older and they have a high-grade stiffness, um, even if they don't have pain and they can't get their hand to their mouth and they can't extend it to their, say, over 75, then I'd probably put a total elbow in them. Again, this is a person with a bad joint. I have to slip in a rep question here. As a rep who's been in the room on many Coonrad Mori elbows over my career, uh, you look at that humeral component, it comes in a 4-inch, a 6-inch, and an 8-inch. And I've always wondered what is the most appropriate size for each particular patient. Any thoughts on that? I've uh, never been able to quite get my, my head around that. Well, uh, not only were you maybe didn't get your head around it, I don't think we did either too well. What I used to teach was that uh, for a rheumatoid, a 4-inch, and the reason for it is they don't use it too much, and you want to stay away from the shoulder in case they need a shoulder replacement. Um, for a post-trauma, since they're going to use it more since, by definition, typically a post-trauma, that's the only joint involved. So all their other joints are normal, so they're going to use it maybe normally almost. Then you need the longer 6-inch stem. 8 inches reserved for revisions, uh, of a specific kind of revisions. Um so we looked this up, and, and in our place, um, the four and six inch had the same statistical incidence of loosening, whether it was rheumatoid or post-trauma. So that, that basis that we used to select wasn't borne out at the first look at the data. However, the number of patients with the four inch stem uh, that... Um, came loose was higher than the six inch stem but it wasn't statistically significant but what was significant is they came loose sooner so it clearly showed that the four inch stem was not lasting as long as the six inch stem um, and uh, came loose sooner even though the absolute number of the two samples wasn't enough to reach statistic significance so in answer to your question i do think that uh, 
if the person is um, relatively young and active, like let's say, and uh, in in they have a fracture, and uh, the fracture fragments are removed, not much in the way of distal humerus left. Uh, if it was a male, I'd probably use a six inch. And if it's female, maybe a four. If the female is like down in Texas and still riding her horse and was feeding her horse and was doing the kind of things that they do down there, uh, I might I might put in a six inch in, in that person. In uh, rheumatoid patients, 95% of the time will be a four inch implant. Any thoughts on utilization of plugs versus, say, just buttering the stem before you insert it? Yeah, well, I think that when we plug it up, there's two things that happen. Number one is you are, it's a, I think of it as a cement restrictor. So it's really keeping the cement from flowing up into the humerus that can mess up a total shoulder. If you have a really good plug that is, that is resist being displaced, then you can pressurize against that. But you at least want something to keep the cement from flowing up the canal. Uh, the, it's hard to get a good plug. It's because the canal expands uh, distally. Once you get through the the metaphyseal region, it narrows down. Once it gets through the neck of the metaphysis, it can be pretty narrow. Once it gets into the middle of a like a rheumatoid, these canals are very wide and patchless, and so these plugs just kind of float around. So it can be hard to get a good fit in them. But I do think that there's merit in plugging the humeral side. The on the side, when you prepare it, a lot of debris goes down the canal, and um, the, a lot of the canals are very small or can get very small. So if you look at the x-ray and it's got a small canal, you probably don't need to um, uh, plug that for the ulnar canal. If you had to give a piece of advice to the community surgeon doing total elbow replacements and doesn't see a lot of them every year, what would that advice be? Well, uh, as we know, for all the procedures, the more you do the better you get at it. And so if you first have to ask yourself whether or not you think you've got enough experience, maybe you saw a whole lot in your fellowship or a lot in your residency and maybe not so much in your practice, but you can, you can continue and maintain your uh, competency with a certain level of volume. So first is just, you know, do you really feel comfortable doing this? The answer is yes. Uh, the very first thing I tell, uh, physicians is look very carefully at the canals of both the humerus and the ulna. The eliminate the one mistake that can be made is not appreciating the size of the ulna canal and the bow of the ulna canal. And I have seen many of the problems that I have seen are related to the physician not planning for this or appreciating this. And uh, and I've seen malpractice suits based on that. So Make sure you understand the size of the ulnar canal and how it bows. And, and uh, some of them can be so small, you're, you'll have to even make your extra small implant smaller. So that that's the first thing. The second thing is today, people that do the total elbows somewhat regularly try to preserve the triceps because it um, allows a more reliable uh, rehabilitation. Um, and if when a patient has a fracture, it's pretty easily done. Um, but uh, there's an exposure called a paraalacrinin, P-A-R-A, paraalacrinin, that I use for total joints that aren't badly deformed. And uh, and I think that some form of the triceps preserving uh, exposure uh, is good. But if you don't have a lot of experience, 
don't compromise and make sure you got got a good exposure. That's that's a, a real key. I think after that, the uh, you put in the implant that you're most comfortable with, you're most familiar with. Make sure you got the sizes that will fit down the canal. I've seen instances where uh, the, the uh, physician did not have an extra small or he had an extra small, but it was still too large and he didn't know he could modify the implant. So make sure that uh, you will, you either have the implant or you can make the implant fit the kind of bone that you're dealing with. This is great stuff. So speak to the rep and the surgeon who may be in this exact same case next week. What has to happen to get out of the room? Well, oh, okay. Well, the first trick is to make sure you've notched the tip of the olecranon enough so you got a straight shot. Um, the most common problem is that the tip of the implant hits the uh, uh, dorsal uh, cortex, and it just won't, you know, you can't negotiate down the canal because the tip of the olecranon is throwing the, throwing the implant too proximally, and it's causing the tip to dig in. Uh, on the uh, dorsal uh, cortex. So you widen the orifice uh, uh, entry into the ona and you notch the olecranon region so you can get a straight shot down the canal. The other thing is look at the bow. The rule of eights, eight centimeters from the articulation or from the axis of rotation is where the ulnar bow starts usually. And the, that average is about eight degrees. So there's usually an eight-degree bow, eight centimeters from the uh, axis, and that eight centimeters is about the length of your small component. So it's usually not a problem. But if you are having trouble getting down, use the extra small implant, and you can cut it, and you can get it shorter and shorter, and um, and you then taper the implant so it is um, uh, it isn't a, a sharp edge, but it's, it's rounded. So it slides down without friction. Um, that that's what I mean when I say modified. Occasionally, I've even taken the um, the burr and removed the um, plasma spray around the ulna because um, uh, the bone is just too small to receive that big of an implant. I was pondering cementless on the total elbow and was just curious uh, i could see that as being well good news is it grows in the bad news is it grows in and then you've got a nightmare getting it out any thoughts on the future of seeing cementless implants in this space well part of it is it's still a kind of an orphan joint it's the least replaced joint uh, in the body and so to have a program to study that is expensive and if you put it through a business model, it probably would not be cost-effective to develop it, if that's the only thing you're doing. Um, but um, th- there is an example of a um, of an implant in Japan, the kudo that um, uh, is put, the humeral component is put in without cement, and it incorporates very well. But you are right; if it incorporates very well, and you decide you need to get that very well implant out for some reason. Um, you really have to do an osteotomy, and uh, and you can violate the humerus, and that makes the reinsertion of another implant more precarious. So that that's one thing. The other, I think, is um, just the geometry is such that um, it's a little bit hard to 
know exactly the right pattern. For example, do you put a specialized coating behind the flange so that it will incorporate, or do you leave that like it is? Because it seems to incorporate pretty well as it is. And just treat the the stem that goes down the canal. And um, again, it takes. You should study those kind of issues and questions, and that takes money. And um, quite frankly, the loosening rate of implants right now is pretty low at the elbow. And um, the problem is more of uh, polyethylene wear, and we think that's being addressed maybe with the cross-link polyethylene. So I would say that um, there just is not a very strong clinical need at this time for that. I think think that if, if there was one developed, it was demonstrated to be effective and uh, not hard to do technically, I think it would be used. Uh, what I think is more uh, issue for Americans is having available a hemi replacement that replaces the anatomic surface of the humerus um, and then allows you to fix some fractures like shear fractures uh, with a, or to treat them with a hemi replacement and you don't touch the ulna or the radius, they're left uh, inviolate. Um, we've had some of those here that were being used with uh, off-label that way, and the FDA has put an end to that. So they're still, it's still being used in Canada and um, in Europe and um, in Asia. So hemi replacements are used around the world, but not here. You have served as president of AOS, American Orthopedic Association, and the American Shoulder and elbow surgeons. Tell me, uh, do you enjoy the service uh, in these professional memberships? Do you enjoy the the administrative side uh, of working within these groups? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd say I really like the administrative side, but I, I guess I don't mind it. I, um, I do think, like my, I was taught, my dad taught me that if you're going to do something, do it as best you possibly can. And uh, I've always tried to think, you know. What can you contribute to this organization if you're asked to do this? And uh, I, I have a respect for all three of those organizations. And I was willing to um, do what I could to help, um, uh, you know, advance their mission. And um, I feel as though as I've looked back on on those, uh, there are certain discrete things that I think that we tried to do during my uh, presidency that uh, ha- have been beneficial So I feel like I I was able to discharge pretty well what my responsibility was. What is your advice to surgeons just coming in, how to balance work life and keys to building a successful practice? First of all, I think that it's important to recognize that you're fortunate enough to be trained as a physician and then particularly fortunate to be an orthopedic surgeon. There is a certain expectation that you will uh, contribute that you have the ability to contribute with your brain and uh, with certainly with your funds, maybe not so much with your time, um, but you might still be asked to c- contribute your time. The, the, so that starts with uh, being very efficient in how you use your time. You don't waste it, and you don't waste other people's time. That's a passion of mine. Do not waste your or other people's time. Um, the other thing that I came to not as early as I should have, is that when we talk about work-life balance, um, I, I kind of think that that is uh, uh, 
almost like an inappropriate term because it's they're mutually exclusive. And what I mean by that is, what what are you trying to balance? Or it's kind of mutually exclusive because uh, if if you're married, most most people are significant other. But if you look at the marriage license in that process, you've kind of committed that that's your number one priority, that person, and then your family. Um, when you take the oath of Hippocrates, uh, you say, my number one responsibility is my patient. So now you have put yourself in the hole of committing to two different and not necessarily related and sometimes at conflict commitments, your family and your profession. So that means that the answer to your question is, there is, it's not a destination, it's just a constant way of traveling. And you just have to be constantly aware of it and try to balance it. And at any given time, um, you're going to be challenged about which way do you go. And it doesn't happen every moment of the day or every day, but it happens. And it happens pretty regularly. So um, to try to understand what decisions you should make at any given time, of course, depends on a lot of circumstances. But I've summer, uh, simplified the process for me in what I call step up and look back. So if you are faced with a difficult situation where you got a child who is in a play or in an important ball game or any ball game is important actually, I guess, but, um, or you have a patient that has a complication or that has an issue in the hospital and the nurse is asking about it and you think maybe I ought to go in and take a look, but you, you know, you're just not too sure. So both of them are valid. So which one do you do? Um, Maybe those are not good examples, but what I do is I project myself a year from now and say, okay, this time next year, if I look back on this decision, what do I wish I would have done? Do I wish I would have gone to that birthday party or do I wish I would have gone to that meeting? And uh, if you do it that way, at least in the way my brain works, uh, that's always been a very helpful and useful um, lens to clarify what the decision should be. So, on a day-to-day basis, that is something that you that I that I do use. The other is trying to be very efficient at a time so you can do both uh, well. For example, when I would come home, I never did any of my papers and never did any studying till the kids went to bed. Uh, I didn't want them to see me at my desk uh, every night because I was sending them a message that I'm at work all day and then I'm come home and I eat and then I'm in my study. So I didn't do that. Um, I didn't sleep too much, but I didn't have to, I don't think. Uh, maybe I did need to and didn't know it, but um, uh, that that was the technique that I used. The other is I tried not to go back. If I had stuff I had to do, I would get home a little bit later, but I would not go back in unless I was on trauma call. So it means, uh, in answer to your question, I think you got to recognize that the work-life balance is a real issue and you'll never get it right. The best you can do is work at it through your career and life. And, um, is, and it, once you recognize that it's an issue, uh, then you've got a chance of not solving it, but at least addressing it. That's just great advice, doctor. I mean, we struggle with the same thing as device reps. The shop can take absolutely as much as you want to give it to the harm and exclusion of everything else in the room. So, uh, you never really reach a point where you're, you've arrived in this arena, do you? That's right, and, and you never solve it. You know, I'm so, you know, you don't get to the point and say I balanced it. And you may or may not know I have four kids, and two of them are orthopedic surgeons, and 
we have a very, very, very close family, and all four of the kids have close families. So, um, thanks to my wife, we have managed to avoid some of the problems that others have faced who've tried to develop a busy uh, career, try to contribute to their uh, profession and their patients, and still maintain a family. I was fortunate. I won't say that I was able to do it, but I will say that our family was able to um, to come through it, thanks to my wife. I can only imagine that you've had your share of sales reps in the OR over the years, and many of them listen to the show. Any advice that you can offer them that would better them in their position? I was very fortunate because I honestly... And I hope my reps are listening because I was really fortunate. Uh, when I was here in Rochester, uh, we had um, extremely uh, good uh, representatives in, uh, of the company and of the product. And the thing that is most um, appreciative is the knowledge base because if you come out with something new or you've, you're trying a new system or you're trying a system you haven't used much before, um, you know, it, it is uh, good to um, um, go to a sawbones and try to do something uh, so that you're familiar with the instrumentation or whatever on your own. But to have a rep in there that is uh, very knowledgeable um, and knows his stuff or her stuff um, gives you a great sense of confidence. You should not come to rely on that and say, well, they'll work me through this. That's not what I mean. But it's really comforting to know that uh, your um, your rep will have the the answer for you, and that means that the reps really need to prepare, uh, not necessarily for an individual case, but just know the product line. And then some instances, like if you're doing a hard revision, where I see most of the questions getting asked today is you're doing a hard revision, you say, well, what fits with this? Or if you're having a mismatch on your femur and you're trying to uh, get stability down the shaft and then have a metaphyseal fit or length is proper. You know, you got to know which uh, components are compatible with which components. So um, I think it's just a matter of knowing knowing your uh, product line and then uh, being prepared to uh, and anticipate the kind of questions you may get. But, I, but I've been fortunate, I, I must say. Dr. Mori, I understand your jersey is hanging in the rafters at the Mayo Gymnasium and no one... <laughs> can ever have that number again. It is officially retired. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for making time today to share your amazing life story with me and my audience. And, and may I add, and I mean this from the heart, well done. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thanks for asking. I really appreciate it. Nice to hook up with you again, and good luck to you uh, on your endeavors. I appreciate it. Step up, look back. If you're going to do something, do it as best as you possibly can. What can you contribute? I was taking notes. Even biphasic stress redistribution. So much incredible material contained in these two interviews. What an opportunity and a treat to have gotten to sit down and listen to the story of Dr. Mori. As always, thank you so much for taking time out of your life to listen. And as we go into this week, let's be thinking about what can we be doing on a daily basis to see to it that one day our jersey is hanging in the rafters of a gymnasium somewhere. So have an awesome week. And again, thank you so much.